Hello, and welcome everyone to the Future of Femalehood podcast, where we work to build a healthier and happier world together with women that are doing it through AI or AI that's built by women. My name is Amanda Dukach. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Emma, an AI companion that supports women in femalehood. And I am so excited to be here with our co-host, Karishma Patel, who is also on the founding team of Emma. Um, Kay, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just hanging in there. I I feel like, you know, it's been so busy with work and our company lately that being able to take time to just pause and get to actually talk to each other as part of our jobs, it's kind of the best part of my day. I love it. It's Yeah, we had... I am, I am, I am moving, which I know Kay and I will probably talk about a little bit. So we had like a little going away party on Friday night and, um, Karishma, who, who I call Kay, sorry, you guys are going to hear me call her Kay during this call, I'm sure. So Kay and her lovely husband, um, who my husband and I are friends with came. And then the next day, Kay and I called each other. We were like, our husbands want to know why we don't hang out like way more. I'm like, well, we talk to each other five days a week nonstop. So I know it's kind of crazy how thinking about you moving, I feel it feels like such a big life change for me that I, I'm honestly dissociating from the whole thing. I just haven't even accepted it yet. But when I really think about it, I'm like, I think I see you in real life at best once a month. And from a day to day, I mean, I see you in Zoom, Google, Google Hangout. So it's not going to change that much. But just knowing that you're just down the street, per se, is just so comforting. I'm I know. Like, and I um. I am also disassociating from this move to say the least. Um, you know, we're so we've been in Houston for a long time. We started Emma, our company in Houston. Both of my children were born in Houston and it's been really good to us. And I wouldn't say that Houston has the general reputation of like supporting AI companies built by women. They're a lot more like oil and gas and things like that. But the city's been really great to Kay and I. Um, we used to work in an office space and a startup hub, which was amazing i don't know if we could have got this far if we hadn't started in that that hub together but it's true during covid we all went remote and then zoom it, it be, in some ways like you didn't feel like you were missing on our relationships when you were on zoom right yeah i mean i think it's changed our whole calibration of like what we need for connection which i guess is good and bad um but good in the way that we get to run our company from basically anywhere so we do so that and with that said, so Emma, which is KMI company, is moving with my family uh, to Boston. We are moving the headquarters. The decision was actually because of Emma, um, but I think it will end up being really great for my family as well. But leaving people like Kay and some of our other coworkers that are in the Houston area is 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 very difficult. Um, but like, let's just talk about what's happening right now with this move. So. Not only am I getting out of a house that I've been in for 10 years, we're doing lots of construction projects to get it ready to sell. We are building a home in Boston from scratch, moving the headquarters of Emma and closing an investment round all at the same time with a newborn baby. It's been really fun. Super fun. That's it? That's all you're doing? Yeah, I, I advise it to anyone listening. This is exactly how they should live their life if you'd like to have a nervous breakdown. Honestly, I have maybe 10% of that going on and I call you with nervous breakdowns and I'm like, what are you doing? She is the one who needs support here. But those are parents like you find you, you what is it? Uh, pull your boots, you know, the bootstrap saying I can't think of it. And like, that's kind of basically like what you do. Um, so we're, we're doing it. I'm really excited 
for the company to be in Boston. That's where a lot of the tech, um, healthcare is. A lot of our investors are in that area. I'm, I'm really, really pumped about it. Um, but I will tell you something that I did with Emma the other day to help with my move. So um, to add to all of this too, I'm driving cross country to get from Texas back to Massachusetts and bringing the Husky and the baby and the six-year-old, um, of course, doing this with, with my husband. So I really like don't know what to do on this trip, but I want it to also be fun. So anyways, I asked Emma, our own app, and I was like, Emma, can you plan a driving trip with me that will take eight days, that, you know, stopping in, in places that are, and, and I gave her lots of prompts and I got a fantastic response. So Emma actually planned the cross country trip for us, which is, is so exciting. Um, but I actually learned something doing that with Emma myself that I wanted to tell you about today. So there is such a learning curve, I think, for everyone on AI, right? Which I'm sure we're going to talk about um, on many episodes, not just this episode. But even myself, like I built Emma, right, with you. We built her. And I noticed that as I was talking to her and asking for this request to, to design me this cross-country trip with my family, that depending on how I asked her, I got very different results. And I think that is the learning curve that's going to happen is I was like thinking like, my gosh, like what is this like for people that don't build AI, that don't speak on AI, that aren't educating AI to understand like how do we start to use AI as a society and where are those learning curves going to be? And then it's going to be like exponential learning curve. So I think I've been saying this for months now that I think one of the biggest new marketable skills, actually, I don't think I know is going to be being able to create prompts for AI. Like that is going to be a skill in and of itself. The way you are able to hack an AI, you know, whether it's GPT or whatever it is you're using is going to be its own skill set. Um, I recently was talking to a friend who mentioned that she had gotten laid off recently um, and all the tech layoffs. And, um, I told her, I was like, hey, unsolicited advice, but I really know that the market's going towards AI and what's going to set you apart from probably a lot of other people looking for a job is it how proficient you are in AI prompting and how you can kind of have the edge for that. Um, and I can say as someone who's looking for a new hire in a few different roles right now, if, some, if I see on someone's resume that they're really, really good at AI prompting, that, that will be an immediate weed out metric for me for resumes. You know, you're right though. I wasn't thinking about that, but actually anybody in any position in our company, if they were familiar with AI prompting in general, like even if you are an accountant, that would have value for lots of different reasons. Yeah. Um, I think I think that we're all living in a world right now where we're, I, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking like, okay, like, I have to go take an AI class. Like I, I have to learn AI. Like I have to go back to school. And I'm not saying that there's not use cases for that and that that might not make sense for you depending on what you do for a, a job or in, in your day-to-day -day life and what you want to do. But I actually think it's a lot more simplistic. Like I think that it was like the very, very early days of the internet. Although um, I just want to preference by saying, I actually think that what's happening with AI is much bigger than websites, which is the examples I'm going to give you. But let's just say websites. The websites that actually did really well in the early days were people that were just the first ones that started using the internet that like came up with crazy ideas for websites. They just learned like what a website could do. What could the value proposition be like? They were not trained on website creation. I'm not saying that some developers of websites were not early people that won in those days. And they did um, in the big boom. But a lot of the people that won was like the woman 
who had a boutique and was the first one that thought, I wonder if I could like sell this t-shirt through this website thing. And maybe like somebody would get on this website if I posted my, that was actually who did really well. And that's what's happening with AI. Like just start using it, like start following the influencer, start like you're already listening to me. So you're already like halfway there, right? Of like listening about AI and that's like fantastic. But like, just start doing it the way that like, even myself, I was like, why am I going to, and it's not a bad thing. I love road trippers, the website, they're fantastic. But five years ago, when I planned our cross country trip, I did roadtrippers.com, which is a website. And I like stopped myself and I was like, why am I not using Emma? She's so much better for this. Like AI was built to benefit all of us in humanity in lots of different ways. And this is a great use case for it. And Emma did a fantastic job and she did it in like four seconds, you guys, like four seconds. You guys, I'm, I'm just sitting here kind of like a proud mama. I know that Amanda and I are building this company for AI and like, this is what we do every day, but I'm going to out her really quickly in the sense that she can, she's, <laughs> she's either end of the spectrum. Like she can either build a company for AI and like run this and have this like huge vision. Um, or she has to call me to help her virtually connect her Bluetooth headphones to her laptop. Like there's no in between for Amanda at no, all. No, if, if I am sure that, that anyone in our interior team is like, I cannot believe that Amanda is now running a podcast on AI, not because I'm not capable of doing it because I'm just not the first one that's like, jumping into the saddle of using new technology in my day-to-day -day life, even though I create technology that's like super leading edge. So it's like such a juxtaposition, right? But yeah. it's, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. So um, either way, I'm very excited though, um, that Emma was able to help me. And I'm really excited about everyone just starting to just use it in their day-to-day -day life because I just believe not even believe we are so positive that ai is going to help humanity in so 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 many ways and the only way that we're going to be able to do it is if we all jump into the seat together so that you don't fall behind basically speaking of helping humanity in many many ways um i read on the news uh yesterday or this morning um that the beatles are going to be releasing a new final album using ai to recreate John Lennon's voice. I mean, I'm not surprised at all. Hold on, Rodney. Who Rodney's face just like, I want to unmute because I'm sure he has something to say about this. Part of me is very, very excited at the potential of <clears throat> things created like that. And part of me is also really sad for like, I don't know, it's kind of like how they've been using, um, uh, you know, almost like deep fakes to superimpose dead actors into previous roles, or like in the case of Star Wars, or de-aging certain actors in certain ways. I think it's super cool. It also at times feels a little kind of weird, like, hey, I would love to hear a new Beatles record, and I will listen to it. And in my mind, I'm also going to kind of be listening to it as almost like a fan re-recording of their stuff, because it's just like, it's not really him, but it kind of like is in, in certain ways, you know, it's really cool. Um, like I would love to hear uh, unreleased Bob Dylan, uh, you know, uh, songs from way back when he was in like the mid 60s before his voice got all gravelly with smoke. That would be incredible. Um, 
It's a little weird though. It's kind of strange. I love it, but it's very strange. It's I a mean, new like, world we're in. Is it like, is it utopia? Is it dystopia? Like, I mean, I think we're all kind of trying to figure out like- It's a dystopia. It's kind of in between. <laughs> yes, I think we're, I, but, but I think this is what's going to be so important for us all to keep in mind. And there is things that we're going to have to do as a society, governments, regulations to make this happen. But the way that we all now are pretty good, like 99.9%, .9%, of course, I'm making up that stat. Like we can see when somebody has a filter on, on Instagram, we can see when something's been Photoshopped more or less, but society has learned that. Right. And also like we have created things that help us understand when that's there. So I am positive that we are walking into a world of AI where there is going to be um, things that are going to create, whether it's like AI watermarks, but like something that basically says like, a powerful AI tool was used to do this and and like you're looking at it and I think there's going to be um, government bodies or maybe not government, but there's gonna be organizational bodies. They're going to really like administer a lot of this. So the, the technology, the thoughts are there. The people that are creating AI are definitely starting to think like, how do we create systems that allow us to basically have like societal antibodies? against like these fakes more or less. Well, speaking of government regulation, I'm just the queen of transitions today, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> speaking of government regulations, I actually just read also that the EU passed the EU AI Act. Have you guys heard about that? Mm -hmm. So I, I have my notes in front of me. So it's the first comprehensive set of regulations for the artificial intelligence industry. Um, it's, they, they say it proposes requiring generative AI systems such as GPT to undergo uh, review before commercial release and seek to ban real-time facial recognition. Um, there were so 99 votes in favor and 28 against and 93 abstentions. So, I mean, it's, it's happening. So I'm... I'm really happy to hear that there was more votes for it. However, and um, I do know what you're talking about. I just didn't realize that that was the, the, the name of it. This is all that I want to say. Sam Altman, who we all know is the founder of OpenAI, was there at congressional hearings. And one of the questions they asked him was, would he like to be the person that was basically leading the regulatory body that they're thinking of, of putting together? So all I want to know is, like, who's coming up with that for the EU? Like, no, but honestly, I literally want to, like, who is the person? What is their background? What is their skill set? Because um, I don't know if it's as simplistic as we're all acting like it is. Um, the other thing, too, is the exponential growth uh, curve, you guys, on AI. I don't think we've ever seen it with any technology before. There's nothing that I remember from, you know, high school or college or anything like that. So the exponential growth curve is um, it's shocking. So. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. So I'm happy to see them doing it. But again, like, I'd like to know who's behind it and like, what are those standards? I'm going to jump in again real quick because, you know, there was uh, a story about people being um, <clears throat> basically conned by these companies selling Trump bucks where you could buy a Trump buck for a hundred bucks. And it was a thousand dollar currency note. And it was Trump was going to make his own bank who could then you know, accept those money. So people bought it like crazy and they used AI generated video and voice to make it seem like Trump was supporting it. In addition to that, Ron DeSantis in Florida posted this big ad, this big old TV ad where he had photos of Trump hugging Dr. Fauci that he was using against him that were completely generated by, by AI. 
so I'm glad that these types of regulations are coming in place because right now, at least people do not know the difference. They don't, they don't even know that these kind of things are possible to question it. That's that. Okay. So that's the key is what you just said. It's that they don't even know that they should be questioning. I still, to this day, say to people, like random people, like if I'm at, I don't know, if I'm at like the bank filling out paperwork for something that, that Emma needs and literally like the, the bank manager says to me, like, what does Emma do? And if I'm like, oh, we build AI companions that da, 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 da. They look at me sometimes like I'm absolutely crazy, which I totally understand. And I'm, 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 I appreciate, but it's the fact that people have no idea that like, this is not the future. We're in it. Like it's already happening. There's, and, and mind you too, just for anyone listening, Emma is less than 15 people. So we have built this incredibly savvy, inc it, she's built very ethically. And I know that makes no sense to anyone because it's using mine and my team's ethics. But I promise you, like she's best in class built from an ethical perspective, from an impact perspective. But still, it's a team of like less than 15 people. And we were able to do this. So imagine what's happening at places like Google and Amazon, like what, what they're working on. And I don't know all the times, to be honest, if they're doing much of a better job. I think sometimes being small and scrappy and having this like very specific vision and that like that startup hunger that sometimes you can actually develop things that are cooler but just to put it on a scale side like we're already in it if, if emma's done what she's done then you can oh, just download it today like so in it these like especially with these artificially generated ai images i mean obviously the the political propaganda stuff is totally terrifying and if you could hear an eye roll through audio like mine would have just been so loud um but I mean, I, I, I definitely, on my own personal social media algorithms, like it, it must know me very well because I'm always targeted with AI. Like look at this new AI, artificial AI generated image. So today I saw scrolling through Instagram, um, AI, an AI, artificial, artificially generated image of Freddie Mercury at an, a pride parade in present day. So like what that would look like if he was performing at a pride parade in present day it was beautiful and mm -hmm. then the other ones that i saw that like just totally tickled me it made me so happy um where someone reimagined the harry potter cast oh, as if they were in west amazing as if it was like created by wes anderson oh my god they were gorgeous so it's amazing yeah. you really have the spectrum of content here whether it's things that are purely just for enjoyment of like a what if situation yeah. or actually terrifying yeah I mean, I think I think the concern for me is that the is is actually along the side of the way that social media is able to push content to people so quickly and that bad characters are so effective at that. Because my concern is that bad characters are gonna learn to use AI and then are gonna find that like perfect message and then they're gonna be able to distribute it so quickly through social media because of the reach and the fact that it's not like publications that are vetted, the fact that like, that's, I think the concern and that's why I think that we need regulation and things like that. Um, but with that said, the technology is here and we can't stop it. So what we need to do is like, we need to focus on the things that I think are going to hurt humans a lot faster. So like, for example, elections, I personally, as someone that develops AI, I have a lot of concerns around elections because elections are already happening. They are done by the people for the people we have seen the impact that elections are facing from social media so like in rodney you just gave such a great example like 
I cannot believe I didn't even hear that on the news. Like that should have been on the front cover of the New York Times. I didn't even hear of it. And I'm on every every alert possible, I feel like, that exists with AI at this point pretty much comes to me. Yeah, that's terrifying. I mean, terrifying. The using it for bad obviously is out there and it's gonna happen. I think you can weaponize anything and people are going to be flocking to weaponize something like this, but there are a lot of as we know, uh, a lot of really good applications of how this can like save lives, how this can really, you know, benefit people. And that's like what we're building. Um, but also, you know, we, we touched on pride a second ago, our, our guests that we interviewed, uh, Lisa and Megan, you know, women that have come out later in life. I think that conversation fully just like shook me to my core as just hearing their stories. And um, yeah. I, I'm I'm really excited to be able to share that with everybody because the way that AI plays a role in that was just so interesting. I mean, that's the beauty of AI is it like what it can do from an equality perspective, but we have to build it in an equitable way. We have to build it in an inclusive way. We then have to distribute it in an equitable and inclusive way, which I think a lot of us that are leading AI companies are thinking like that. I think most of us are like either technology geeks or these like dreamers, right? Where I think we're like, how do we build something that's better for humanity? I know that there is some bad characters out there. There's some people that do it to make billions of dollars. But I think most of us really are just trying to make the world a better place. And we saw that there was technology that existed or was getting closer to existing. And then we just wanted to kind of put it together. But that's what's exciting to me is what AI can do for those that are disenfranchised. Like, loved the conversation with Lisa and Megan. Lisa and Megan are great friends of mine. So I just enjoyed the conversation anyways. But when you hear their stories and when you think in particular, like about like, just imagine what it's like still, even in today's world to be a teenager and decide that you are different from what you think society wants to see and having like something like Emma to talk to that can make you just feel like, like you got this, like you're perfect, you are okay. And here's some real tools to help you get through these next phases that could really potentially tear you down. And that's what's so exciting about AI. And I'm really, really excited um, that we did this podcast during um, LGBTQ month as well, because um, I just think it's important to celebrate people that are different. And AI, um, if we build it equitably, inclusively, I mean, I think it has the potential to really help people like that. Totally. I totally agree. I mean, I think I think this is a perfect uh, segue into that segment because, you know, I'm the segue queen. <laughs> I am so pumped about today's episode because um, I have two incredibly dear friends of mine that are on along with, of course, Karishma. And before I tell you guys who they are, I have to tell you the reason why I chose them for this podcast episode in particular. So first of all, who's co-hosting with me is Karishma Patel, who's on the founding team of Emma with me. She was like the first person basically um, that I kicked off the company with a long time ago, but we've actually never done a podcast recording together. Um, so this is actually Karishma and my first podcast co-hosting, which is so much fun. So when I knew it was Karishma and I, I was thinking who could we have? And then I realized we were recording in June, which is of course Pride Month. 
and I thought, oh, why don't we have the two other OG girls from Emma, which was Social Mama back in the days, which is Lisa Sugarman and Megan Pastor. And fun fact, or big spoiler is, when Lisa and Megan both um, joined Emma many moons ago, um, and none of us are 21, we're all far above that age, to be honest, but um, Lisa and Megan had not, if the term is still appropriate, come out of the closet. And they have since then as these thriving, incredible powerhouse moms. And I just think it's so fascinating and such a great topic. So with that little spoiler, I'm gonna pass it off to Lisa Sugarman to introduce herself. Then you guys can hear from Megan and we'll get into it. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. It's great to be with the, the OG crew. It's been a long, long time. Um, so I'm Lisa Sugarman and I'm I'm here in the Boston area. I live just north of Boston. Um, married for, just celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary. So we've, we've been at it for a while um, to my high school bay. And you both, you both know him pretty well. Um, I'm a mom. I have two daughters, both grown. Um, one is flown. One is living in Japan. One is living in the room next door. So I'm kind of at both ends of that spectrum. And professionally, I do a lot of different things that like all somehow kind of jive together in um, a neat little platform. So by trade, I'm a writer. Um, and that has kind of grown over the years into writing parenting books. Um, I've written a few parenting books. Um, I've been writing a syndicated opinion column for probably a dozen years at this point that's kind of all over the place. And I think it was that column, Amanda, that kind of brought you and I together. You had read some of my stuff while you were in Houston and reached out. So I've been doing that in conjunction with book writing. And I've taken kind of a, a hard lane change in the last several, well, maybe two years. And a lot of my focus, a lot of what I'm writing about now and what I'm um, spending my time doing is speaking about and writing about and advocating for mental health awareness and suicide prevention in particular. Um, I've become a crisis counselor. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk at length about that. Um, I work with the Trevor Project and I also work with um, Samaritans, the 988 suicide helpline. So I do a lot of different things that all kind of relate to the family unit and health and wellness and um, kind of that work-life balance. So that that's me, that's who I am. And Megan, I think you're you're next in line. I'm next in line. Okay, um, my name is Megan Pastor. I own a contemporary Southwestern art gallery. We are online only. It's called Southern Kindness gallery.com. And um, I host a pop-up market in Denver, Colorado, but I'm based out of Houston, Texas. I have twin girls. They are about to be 15 years old. Um, and we moved back from Colorado uh, to start high school here so we can be closer to family uh, because we actually were going through a lot of um, mental health. We were going through a mental health journey with one of my kiddos. And um, of course, it's continual. It's still going on. We're in a, a good spot right now. We're in a safety zone. Um, but yeah, I'm the. I found myself really, truly isolating because of that. Um, and I had to get back to Houston to get back around my people and um, feel support again. And it's been a lot better. Um, reaching out to community and opening up, and um, you know, kind of trying to refine my voice. Um, and in terms of like refining my voice, I came out when I was 30 um, and I identify, I 
I'm like for tendency is like I'm a rebel. So like identifying and labeling things and also Aquarius is like really hard for me. Um, but I would identify as bisexual. Um, and so I'm trying to get to a place where I'm like even like myself comfortable saying that because so much of my life has been, you know, not labeling things. I'm like noncommittal. Um, I just it's 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 a new thing for me. And so I find myself in Houston not really having a community anymore um, and trying to like refine that and and figure that out and recently single. And so now I'm like tiptoeing back in and I'm like, it's a, it's a new world for me right now. And so it's exciting and also intimidating in a lot of ways, but I'm excited to, to get back out there. Well, I'm, so I'm really excited that you kicked us off in, in that way. So um, we, we don't have any specific topics for today. As you guys know, like this is a show about artificial intelligence. We, we are going to talk um, about artificial intelligence and about the biases that exist in it in particular is probably we're going to focus on today. Um, but I'm so happy that you started with that because before we hear about Lisa's story, I don't know if you even remember this, Megan. So fun fact to our listeners, Megan is, is actually my, my best friend in the real world. And when Megan and I first met, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago, one of our very first um, like dates, I guess, basically, was we were we, we used to work together in a hotel and we were down at the hotel bar and we were meeting one of Megan's friends. And as we were walking out, and this is, of course, before Megan came out, before she had any idea that she was this different, I don't know, version of herself, if maybe that's the way to say it. Um, she turned to me, she's like, listen, I just want to give you a heads up. Like, this is my girlfriend. She's amazing. She's an awesome human being. Um, she's like straight, but now she's with a woman. Like, I don't know what's going on. I just want to like, like, let you know, like, don't you think it's so crazy how you can just like come out? Like when you've been like with a guy your whole life and all of a sudden like she's no longer with him. And I remember Megan and I having this dialogue about how like, we thought it was so interesting that she had just discovered this about herself. And then fast forward, what, Megan, maybe three years later, you, wow. met, you met Laura? Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's so it just goes to show you like how much we can all change and we have to remain um, open to being changed. So, okay, well, Lisa, tell us. Well, oh, sorry, to, go ahead, Megan. Real quick. I mean, you know, we did grow up in a repressed society. Like I grew up in a small town in Texas, you know, that wasn't around. I didn't have that idea in my mind. And so, and then I had kids at 21, I had twins at 21 and I was single. So like it very much went into this like survival state of just like taking care of my family. Um, so, and, and dating was never really in the, the world for me because I just wanted to focus on my kids and, um, you know, providing a life for them that felt good and stable. And so um, I never explored that part of myself. And it wasn't until I met um, my then partner that I was like, oh, like I'm really attracted to her and I didn't really know this part of me and um, you know, it, being able to, to explore that has been interesting and um, feels very like you can walk out and like, you know, you're this like new version of you that you've always been. So it's this layer of confidence that you just like refine. So it's pretty interesting. I love that you attached the word confidence to it. Did you did you feel the same, Lisa? Like what how did how did you discover this? And again, version of yourself, I'm sure, is not the politically correct way to say it, but it it feels right in the moment. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, I mean, there were definitely some similarities to what Megan went through. Um, add about 20 years onto that. Um, I'm I'm definitely the oldest one on this screen at this moment by a bunch of years. So I'll be 55 
next month. And it's um, as of you know this month being Pride Month, it's two years ago that I came out. So I'm like a queer elder. I mean, at this point, like I I came out definitely like on the far end of the curve. Um, I mean, for me, it was it was different. Like I said, I've you know I just celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary with my husband. We'd been together for 37 years, almost 38 years, um, since we were 17 years old. And you know, while there were a couple of stops and starts where we just like saw different people. Um, you know, it's, it's mainly been the two of us all this time. But, you know, prior to that, when I was younger, I mean, you got to remember, we're talking about like, you know, the 70s, um, late 70s, like very early 80s when I was a, when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I like graduated high school in 1986. And, you know, back then, I mean, you know, you, you look at the world that we're in now and how stigmatized um, queerness is at this point, and you roll it back 20, 30 years, and people were terrified terrified to own their truth and and come out and and express who they were and live that authentic life and you know and I, and I so I, I guess I, I always knew that there was there was a knowing I guess that's and, and Megan I, I get have a feeling you probably understand that yeah. there was definitely a knowing um I mean I've only ever been with one woman it was a it was a, a, a long and, and kind of complex relationship. Um, and it, it goes back to uh, around the time that I was in college because, and it was a very strange way that the whole thing happened. It's like, it's a very long and, and separate story, but it was just the stars aligned and we kind of got together and it was, be, it was really just something that sustained for a very long period of time, kind of in between other relationships. Um, never when we were with other people, but you know, there were pockets of time we were together, mm. but it was during that time that, you know, I was definitely boy crazy when I was young, um, had boyfriends, had massive crushes, and I wasn't walking around attracted, like outwardly attracted to women, but it was just this knowing, it was this feeling, this vibe, this um, this energy that I felt around certain women. And of course, like the transgender population was so different back then. I mean, it's so mainstream now, it was so not mainstream back then in the way that it is now. And so it was that piece of that for me wasn't existing until more recently, which is when I kind of put all the pieces together. Um, so I always carried this thing around with me all these years, all these decades. Um, and then, as I said, I had that experience with um, this woman and, knew that I had the capacity to love someone of the same sex, but then I knew it was still more, but it's like, we didn't have the vocabulary. Like yeah. We really, I mean, the when you vocab, say, the right, hit. right. I mean, uh, let me tell you something that is, that was a game changer for me. So, um, Amanda, Krishma, you know, my oldest daughter, Riley, who actually was an, an intern, I think the very first ever social mama mm -hmm. intern back mm -hmm. in the day. Um, Riley, graduated college several years ago is, as I said, now living her life in Japan. And she came out going into her junior year of college, um, came out as bisexual. And, you know, to know Riley, you can appreciate the fact that she was somebody who just like, she was like so hungry for knowledge. She wanted to know and understand and, and, um, you know, really kind of dig through all the layers. And, and I feel like that's what everybody in that 
in that um, generation does. Like they're so knowledge hungry and they're so aware and educated. And so she did that. And I distinctly remember it was um, probably a, a year or two after she came out and she and I were having breakfast and just the two of us and we we're talking and she was trying to explain to me the subtleties between like pansexuality and for instance, bisexuality. They're so similar in so many ways, but then pansexuality kind of takes a little left turn. And it, it was in that moment where she was explaining it to me, it was one of the most life-changing aha moments for me. And I looked at her and I said, Riley, I think I'm pansexual. And this is at my 20 something year old child. And she looks at me, she's like, I love you, mom. Like, you're so cute. And, and that's like, I love that for you. I love that. And, it, you know, I had had conversations with my husband and he was kind of aware of my background and, and um, my experiences. And, and that just kind of like lit the fuse. And I really did so much reflecting and, and, you know, so much understanding of what pansexuality is, which is really, I mean, just to kind of give you, if you want me to just, two second explanation of pansexuality as as I understand it, because it's so subjective. It's about how you feel and and how you interpret that classification. And Megan, I totally hear you and get you 100% in terms of like falling into buckets and labeling and am I this or am I that? And, and what is even the need to do that? And I'm finding there's less and less of a need, but I'm kind of a linear person. So I, I kind of like to know where I stand and, and I felt that for me it was important to to kind of understand what I was feeling and be able to attach a name to it. So pansexuality really just means all. Like you have the capacity, or in my case, I know that I have the capacity to to be intimately, sexually, physically attracted to anyone, regardless of their sexual orientation and or their gender. So that's the difference. Like bisexuality is not just being attracted to like men and women, but bisexuality just means two. Like you're you're attracted to more than just the opposite sex, whatever that other sex may be. And pansexuality just kind of like widens the circle a little bit more and it includes pretty much everybody. It doesn't mean that I'm walking around, you know, horribly attracted to every human being who walks by me. It's not like that. It's the same as it is if you're, you know, if you're straight. So, you know, there are people that you encounter in your life and and you're like, I feel like a connection. I feel a bond. I feel an attraction. And and, and that was how it was for me. And and for the first time in my life, I had a word. I had I had something that was concrete that made sense that kind of defined how I had been feeling. And the the way that I that I feel about coming out, like when I think about, well, why the hell did I even bother coming out? Like, what was the point? It wasn't like I had met someone else of a different sex and was like, oh shit, like I, I have this marriage and I have this family and, but now I have this attraction and I, and I want to be with this person. That wasn't it in my case. In my case, like my husband's my person and I, and I love him and, and he's the one that I want to be with, but I was acknowledging this thing in me that was big, but yet I kept it very small. I was very aware of it, but I kept it very small. And the way that I like to talk about it is that it was, you know, that little pocket in your jeans, <laughs> a little teeny tiny pocket. It's good, pocket. It's good for nothing, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's where I, that's where I carried my sexuality my whole life, and I just chose to take it out of that pocket and kind of put it in the sunlight. 
and let it be visible. And I did that for two reasons. The first was because I have a daughter who is queer and that, I mean, we've always been allies of the queer community, but you know, how can I raise my children to be authentic and to be comfortable putting their true selves out into the world if I'm not willing to do that myself? So that was the big driver for me in, in putting myself out there. And the other was just, rec just representation because as anybody who understands what marginalized communities are like, you understand like they need representation. That's how they grow. That's how they support one another. That's how they survive. And so I, I thought, you know what, it's, um, you know, I was getting ready to make a pride post two years ago, like I always do, because I was an ally of my mm -hmm. child and her community. And then I was like, this doesn't feel right anymore. Now that I kind of knew that about myself and identified, I was like, this doesn't feel right anymore. I'm not an ally. Like that's bullshit. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a member of this community while still being an ally. Mm -hmm. And so I turned to my kids and to Dave and I was like, guys, I think, I think I want to come out with this. And they were like, go for it, do mm -hmm. it, do be, be you mom, like, love you. Like, you know, can I have 20 bucks? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It was like that casual. They were like, yeah, you know, so when you share it. that, it like, the first thing that comes to mind, and I think for a lot of people who are either closeted or had the journey of coming out, is just the courage element of either recognizing like your true self and then taking it to the next step and sharing that with your family and your loved ones. And then, you know, for both um, you and Megan, you guys were moms and sharing that with your kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of wanted to talk about that because I feel like a lot of people listening could really, I like, could really love to hear about the courage element of just, you know, what was going through your mind when, you know, that realization happened and when you wanted to actually say it out loud to those specific people, because that's the part where I, you know, I wonder about the most is like, how did you get there? Like, how did you get to that courage point? Because I think that's the hardest part for most people. I mean, in, in my case, it was, and Megan, I don't know if you felt this way, but in my case, when I was already at that point, keep in mind, I was in my fifties, there's a different level of self-awareness and I guess life experience and maturity and you're kind of feeling settled in your own skin, even though I was kind of adding a lot to my skin at that time, it was the easiest thing I've ever done. It was, you know, you know how we're, the saying goes about you being your own worst enemy. Like we get bogged down in our heads and we, we hyper-focus on things and we inflate things in our mind. And then when we go and do the thing or say the thing or act on the thing, we're like, well, that wasn't so bad. That was, that was, that was okay. Well, it was, it was even more so with me coming out. Um, it was the most liberating and freeing and comforting thing. It was probably one of the deepest acts of self-care and self-love that I've ever gifted myself. So, I mean, I, I never look back. I had complete support. Um, I mean, I, I lost, I lost my father to suicide when I was 10 years old and my mom, you guys know my mom, she's like the greatest human in the world. And she's amazing. Was, yeah. She's just, um, you know, everything to me. And she was just full Monty. I love you. I'm so supportive mm -hmm. of you. Um, this is amazing. I, I love that you've um, arrived at this place and everyone else across the board, um, whether it be, you know, 
extended family, intimate family, friends, um, community, overwhelming support. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure up to now I've been lucky. I'm sure that I will absolutely at some point in time come across people who are dicks because there are lots of dicks in the world. <laughs> but right now, I, I mean, um, it's been nothing but a positive experience. So it's just be, being able to live to level up and live authentically to that degree has been the most freeing and beautiful thing I've ever done. Mm. To live authentically, isn't that all of our goals? Mm. Megan, what was it like? I mean, I, I remember, cause I was with you in the phone calls with the tears or the phone calls of happiness, um, but tell, tell everybody about what it was like for you. Yeah, so um, the knowing, right, had always been there for a really long time and um, I guess I was like, it was a new year and I was starting to explore it a little bit more. They are so rambunctious right now. They know I'm on a call, I'm busy and they don't like it. Um, <laughs> I was exploring it more, acknowledging that part of me in the new year. And um, when I met my former partner, um, I kind of knew right away. It was a little bit um, something where I was nervous to have a bunch of voices come around me to give me their opinion. So I kept it really quiet just for myself. Um, and I kept it that way for, I don't know, maybe two months um, just because I wanted to, to be really just authentic to like what I was feeling and what that other person was feeling. And I didn't want anybody else's opinions on that. Um, and then when I was ready to come out, I actually reached out to um, my kid's father first and told him he was very accepting um, and kind and you know caring at that moment. And then I told my sister who I'm not super close with, but I was talking to at the time a lot. And so I told her and I called a therapist and talked to them about like, how do I come out to my kids at the time my kids were 10 um and so i didn't know what that was going to be like and they like quickly found out they're like who are you talking to on the phone a lot like who is this um and it actually ended up being um you know not as big of a deal as i thought it would be for my kids because this was like you know me and my kids have been doing you know 10 years of life just us and now i'm like introducing a you know not just anybody but someone of the same sex and i didn't know what that was going to be like for them um, but they're very big advocates already um, and just super wonderful people. And so it ended up being, you know, liberating. Um, and then from, it ended up being like really close to my 30th birthday. And so she had thrown me a birthday party and it actually was like my coming out party <laughs> and where I like told the world and like, you know, was just like free and had fun. And um, I haven't really had, anyone be negative like i was super supportive through that um even elevated even more in a lot of different ways too and you know when i say that i don't really like labeling too much um i do think it's important to label like for yourself um because then you're like you said acknowledging a part of you um and then i think it's also good too because i think we're going to get to a place in the world where you know it's not just all cisgender you know there's a lot of nuances to people's um, sexuality and their feelings and it's gonna be bigger than 
than we realize. And so having the courage to give a name to something of how you feel is is important on so many different levels. The rebel in me is hard, but it is important. Um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much my my coming out story. And now I'm in a place where, you know, I don't really um, don't have my community yet. And so I'm trying to find ways of doing that. And within that, I'm going to launch a platform for that's uh, a queer platform. And I'm going to host a lot of different socials and events and different cities and states. I have one in Houston and have one in Denver plan because I kind of go back and forth. So I already have, you know, community in, in those two places. But it's going to be a fun, uh, a fun year of exploring more of who I am and um, more people in the world. I'm excited about it. You know, listening to both of your stories just throughout this whole conversation, I think it's really illuminating how much you guys have in common that even I probably didn't even realize when we decided to have both of you guys do this episode with us. And I think this common thread of not just like, you know, at being advocates, allies, and being in this community yourself, but just like channeling your work towards that too, I think is so interesting and so important. Um, I would love Lisa to hear more about what you do with the Trevor Project and just kind of give everyone a list who's listening just an idea of what the Trevor Project is and how that helps the queer community. Yeah, sure. Um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about these days. So for those listening who don't know what it is, the Trevor Project is um, the largest crisis support lifeline for LGBTQ youth in crisis ages 13 to 24. So we we don't we don't ever turn anybody away if they're not within our demographic. Like if someone um, is cisgendered and um, straight and 65 years old and living in Canada, we're not going to turn you away. It's just our target demographic are um, LGBTQ youth in crisis. And Trevor actually just celebrated its 25th anniversary, which is incredibly exciting. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it's it, they're everywhere. It's like every time you turn around, um, you see someone else who is is partnering with Trevor, supporting Trevor. So it's it's been um, a pretty powerful organization. Um, and the reason why I got involved with them, um, so my my father's suicide story, and I don't know how much um, Kirschman, Amanda, I don't know how much you know about this or not. But so I lost my dad, as I said, when I was ten years old. And it, the narrative that I was given at the time was that he had died of a heart attack. He was, he was very athletic and in very good shape, but he was also a very heavy smoker. And so I'm an only child and my dad was my, very much my person at that time. And so my mom kind of made a game time decision in that moment. Like I had lost my father and to then layer on top of that loss, the idea that or the truth at the time that he had actually taken his own life, she, you know, she just didn't know what that would do to me beyond, you know, just the knowledge of his death. So she chose in that moment to kind of change the story to, you know, protect her 10 year old child, which I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for and have only ever been grateful for because I didn't find out that my dad took his own life until I was 45 years old. So that's a oh, humongous wow. gap. Wow. I, yeah. Um, wow. So that's why my my story of, you know, his loss is is a little unique in the sense that I've lost him twice and I've grieved mm -hmm. for him twice and I've I've grieved for him as a child and I've grieved for him um, as a grown married woman um, 
mother of two grown children. So, you know, it's they're like two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and so it took, I mean, it's just 10 years ago now, give or take um, nine years ago that I've known this truth. And it took a lot of years before I was even talking about it publicly. I mean, Dave and my mom were really the only ones who knew. And then, you know, when we felt the girls were old enough when they were in high school, of course, told them, but it took a lot of years and a lot of really, really hard work on my part to get to a point where I could kind of in as much as you can reconcile with that and process that and kind of go through that whole grief process again, which you're, you're, I'm always going to be going through it. I mean, whether he yeah. passed away from suicide or natural causes, it's all grief is an ongoing, have an ongoing relationship. So it, it, it was that point that kind of changed the trajectory of my life when I found out about his suicide, because once I kind of flash forward a bunch of years and got to that point where I started very freely and openly acknowledging that he had taken his life and then started really just like taking in everything that I possibly could about suicide and mental illness. And, and my whole mindset had changed because personally, just as a, as a single human being, I always felt that suicide was a very selfish act, which is a very, very common thing to feel. And it's only after a lot of um, reflection and understanding and experience with a child who has mental illness and um, mental illness is an illness. Like, forget about the word mental. Focus on the word illness. It's no different than heart disease or cancer. Or Brain. it's an illness, and it needs to be treated. And it is beyond that person's control. So once, and it was a very easy mind shift to make. And once I made it, I was like full Monty. This is what I feel like I need to do with my life and whatever voice I have in the world. Um, and so that's I like did a hard lane change and have been in that space. So getting back to the Trevor Project, why it was so appealing to me was because it really has an incredible intersection for me personally between mm -hmm. being a suicide prevention hotline and it's servicing the LGBTQ community. Like that is the perfect blend for me in my life of two of the things that I'm most passionate about. And it was a no brainer for me to try and get involved. Um, and so about a year and a half ago, I started training with them and it's a, a fairly long and um, amazing, but of course, intense process to be a lifeline counselor. And I've been on the phone lines now for it's coming up on a year. And it was very quickly within that year that I realized that this is absolutely without a doubt what I want to be doing with my life. So this is the focus of my next book that I'm working on. This is the work that I'm doing. I just accepted a job working with Samaritans um, here in Boston. And Samaritans is one of the oldest crisis lifelines. They manage the 988 lifeline. So I am now um, a helpline specialist with them working mm -hmm. like full full job, not as a volunteer, but as a full uh, part-time job. And so that's, um, that's awesome. yeah, that's, that's how I got involved with, with Trevor and with crisis counseling and um, why Trevor is so important to me. It's that's so intense. It's um, like, I just no amazing. no I was gonna I was gonna say I want I want to make sure because it's a good place for us to talk I want to talk about what the pro what the Trevor Project is doing with with AI in particular and and there's a reason why this is a good place I think um to 
to, to bring it up. So when we created um, Emma, not only is she empathetic, but a lot of what she does is she she helps us basically notice red flags that are happening that that are happening with users, like if they're showing signs of depression and, and things like that. So we started a conversation um, with a hotline. I'm, I'm not going to say who they are because the partnership isn't finished. But basically, what this hotline told us, and it's a sexual harassment hotline, is that they lose um, up to 40% of their calls every day because they can't get people fast enough to a human to talk. And AI is a fantastic way that we could start a phone call interaction with a, with a, a bot basically, and then be able to understand who needs to go faster in line. And it's really exciting. And the Trevor Project is, is kind of starting to do elements of that. And I'm so excited mm -hmm. to see such a big organization starting to use AI, but especially in the way that they're doing it. So they've started using language processing models that they use really for, for two things from the research. Again, this is my own research. I've not talked to the Trevor Project about this. Lisa is not in this part of the Trevor Project. We have not had this conversation, but they're using it to train counselors, which is incredible because if you've used Emma or any form of empathetic AI, it's a great way to train people. And we also train the AI. Um, so that's a, a really scalable model, but they use it to prioritize the high risk contacts, which is what I was just talking about. Um, but what's important to mention, right? So they're training actual counselors and then they're prioritizing high-risk contacts, but they are avoiding using AI in direct conversation because of the people that call the Trevor Project and how vulnerable they are. But that is so important. I am really starting to get a little bit nervous that as a society that we're going to start to replace humans with AI in places that they shouldn't be replaced. And this is a great example of it. We shouldn't be replacing doctors. We shouldn't be replacing crisis workers. However, AI can prioritize who needs to get there first and can help with areas that aren't showing signs of red flags. So I am so excited to see what the Trevor Project um, is, is doing. So I just want to make sure that I mention that um, at that point. No. Amanda, that's such a good point because even in our, honestly, in our like daily conversations with our mentor who we love, Russ, shout out, yeah. um, whenever we're ideating on the product and saying, you know, Emma is your friend, Emma can be your friend, Emma as, you know, our AI companion, but he always brings it back and he's light years ahead, I think, of the world and just AI, he's one of the, the leaders in it, but he always brings it back to AI is not going to replace human connection. Like, as human beings, we're still going to want to connect with somebody else with a pulse, with feelings like it's never going to be able to replace that human connection. So we have to build it in a way to keep in mind that we're not we're not trying to replace humans. Like even for our own product, we're not trying to make a user think that Emma can be your friend. Emma can be friendly and she can be there for you in ways that a friend could be. But ultimately, we're trying to get her to learn enough about you to so, so she can find you the perfect human or group of humans that you need in that moment. And that moment, what you need in that moment can change from day to day. So I love this, this what Trevor Project is doing in the same way where it's not trying to replace the human, it's just trying to get you to the right human faster. Mm -hmm and more efficiently uh because i think that's so important to keep in mind with where like with where ai is going they're they're trying to use ai to replace so many workers and all sorts of industries which will make a lot of things more efficient but ultimately we still need humans we still need yeah. human contact and that is so so important to keep in mind when talking about ai yeah i i don't think that you can ever replace that like it's it it isn't 
possible to do that because there's a level of like of you know intuition and insightfulness and nuance that exists in the human mind that even the most sophisticated AI product can't replicate. And there's that human emotional factor that, I mean, obviously you can, you know, you can train an AI bot to a point, but, you know, it can't transcend, like, it can't transcend beyond that, you know, that basic level yeah. where, you know, it, it may recognize phrases and it may recognize keywords and it, it may be able to flag certain things like, and I, and I, and I do agree, especially in the context of something like Trevor Project, which I can speak to very, you know, um, very passionately because it's, you know, I'm on that back end. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about the conversations that I have with people, if I tried to put myself in a position to see how an AI bot would handle a certain situation, like it's, it's impossible because you need that empathy and yeah. you need, um, you know, that, that, ability to personally validate someone yeah. and and it terrifies me just as as a mom as a human as a crisis lifeline worker like it it terrifies me to you know to think that there would ever be any expectation that an ai bot for instance would be able to replicate that because they can't and yeah. that's it's dangerous it's like playing with fire but at the same time krishma i can totally see what you're saying and how valuable it is to, to have them service those basic needs and be able to kind of, you know, be effective from a prioritization standpoint. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, as, as someone who is on the lifelines every day, what they're doing with AI technology is invisible to me. I, it's not something mm -hmm. that, that I see, it's not something I have access to, or any of us really on, on my level have any access to. So we're not aware of it day to day, but we know it's we know it's there. We know it's coming. And and you're right. There's a. I mean, look at the look at the world we're living in right now. I mean, the especially in the mental health space, um, people are struggling. People are struggling, and the new epidemic is mental health. Yeah, but but that's where the opportunity lies. I think right. at least right. initially is that having a, a, a chatbot, something like an Emma or something that's again, and again, they're not sentient, like they're not conscious, they're not self-aware. Right. There's a lot of debate right now, if they can be one day, we won't go down that road right now. I have, I, I have mixed opinions on that personally, someone that develops it. But what we notice with a lot of the users on Emma, and I'm sure this is the same at Trevor Project, a lot of places is that our users or, or, or people that are struggling with mental health or struggling with, with self-identification, all these things, they often don't even know when they need help or how to get the help. And there's a great opportunity with things like this that exist to say like, and we do this on Emma, it's literally how she was built like, hey, like you're really struggling. Have you ever heard of the Trevor Project? This is what mm -hmm. they can help you with. Like, let us connect you to the Trevor Project. That's what excites me about it. And really what makes me nervous is not the capabilities. It's going to be the application of it. So I'm so excited to see the executives at something like the Trevor Project understanding the appropriate application for AI, at least in today's world, that it's not to replace the Lisa Sugarman, it's to help Lisa Sugarman do her work faster and more efficiently yes. so she's helping people in the fast way she can. So that makes me so excited to be um, to see companies like this doing it versus there was a company, I don't know if you guys saw in the news, it just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was a hotline, it's in the United States and they decided 
to replace all of their hotline workers with chatbots. And they said that they're not gonna do this permanently. It was like an inside political thing in the company, it sounds like, that they were like, I don't know, like mad. I think what happened was that their hotline um, staff like wanted more money or something. So they said they were just gonna replace it all with chatbots. Obviously a disaster, that is horrible, but that is a great example of such a failure of executives to use this technology because that's going to really hurt people and that's going to put us terrifying it's terrifying absolutely terrifying to me and of all places to do that to do that in the mental health space where these conversations i'm not sure people really understand i know i didn't until i was doing the work that i'm doing like you don't understand the state that so many of these callers are in like you pick up the phone and you may be immediately connected to a higher and imminent risk caller. And someone might have a handful of pills in their hand or a gun in their hand, or they're standing on the edge of a bridge. And the very last thing that they should be presented with is some kind of an artificial bot that's helping them make their decisions. So in in that case, um, I would like to not ever go down that road because that is horrifying but from like you know from the standpoint of you know making everyone else's jobs easier by doing like the the basic and simple tasks like putting putting people in in buckets in terms of like who needs resources quicker or what resources might you need based on you know the words that you're using like that like all day every day absolutely i love ai as like an assistant mm-hmm. like it's amazing yeah. it can help you knock out so many things in a day Megan, are you are you using AI in like your regular life yet at all? No. Have you started dabbling? I'm starting to dabble a lot more because I'm creative in the sense of I like to build things and you know you know create new brands and things like that. But when it comes down to words, like I'm not creative in words, and I don't have the space to be creative in words. I am like my you know New Yorker dad who was just like very small in words. Like I'm I'm few little words type of person, and so I love you know ChatGP for for just creating content for me um at least to like get me going and then i like to like jump from there um but the same thing with like the hotlines too right like it'd be great if you had it on your screen and you could read the resources that's spewing out to you really fast so that you could look at it and be like reiterate some of it right um mm. but i love it as an assistant as some someone that could just like help throughout the day because i'm one person but i try to be this many people Megan, as someone, okay, so whenever I hear someone's a little bit into GPT or a lot of it, this is when I geek out for just like 0.2 seconds on every podcast that I'm on. Just in the last week, in the last however many times, tell me like your favorite thing that GPT did for you. Just like, just tell me something really cool because I love hearing what other people use it for. So I have, and this is like not even to do anything with my brands that I've I've created, but I had a friend who um, is looking for a new job and hasn't been in like the traditional workforce in a really long time. And I was like, hey, like I'm trying to encourage her. And I was like, send me your resume. Like I'll take a look at it. And um, so she sent it to me and it was, you know, kind of like how all of it is in the beginning. It's just kind of like pieced over here and over here and over here. I accumulated it all and put it in there and it spewed out something back and I sent it to her and it was bomb like it was so good and she felt so confident to like be able to put that on her resume and her linkedin and um that for me was the most exciting because i guess it was supporting a friend you know but um other than that i use it for like social media content website content um all of the copy um you know i I redid my my portfolio with it too so it's just fun i really like to use it i i asked it like 
you know, last night, like what are the discrepancies within the biases within, um, you know, uh, AI in the LGBT community. And I love how it like it it laid it out too. Like this is our this is our weak spot. And this is like how to fix our weak spot. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. But the only thing I would say is like um, you know, it doesn't have a little button that shoots you to be like, hey, this is like has biases in it. You know what I mean? Like there's not like a little part on there that's like, oh, that kind of is skewed. Like I would love to be able to be like, oh, I'm gonna click that button because I don't really feel like that's you know right. Um, I think that's kind of maybe what's missing there that could be better, but, but yeah. That's something that our team thinks about all the time as we're building out Emma is just like what biases, just as our team is just the few people that we are and the backgrounds that we represent, like what yeah. biases are we missing or in building into this product and what, you know, how to always be more inclusive. And I think, um, it's a high priority for all of us to really make sure that whenever someone is chatting with Emma, like Emma, understands how to pick up on someone who is in the queer community and how to then adjust her questions and her answers and her empathy based on that perspective and not just come at it from the assumption that this person's cisgender heterosexual you know that mm -hmm. whole thing on top of the layer of race and you know you know economic status and all sorts of things like understanding all of these nuances about a person and being able to be there for them in that way and a while back when we were talking in this conversation, you guys mentioned something that really has stuck with me. And it's that, you know, even on the mental health track, you know, it's an illness, right? It's not, it's no different than kidney disease, heart disease, uh, you know, what you name it, it's the same. And I always say this when I'm talking to people, when you go in for your yearly physical, they'll check all these things. They'll do blood work. They'll check your reflexes. Like, we'll hit the thing on my knee every time. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. But no one is actually mandatory checking in on my mental health unless I go out of my way to identify something's wrong and then go seek help. Which takes so I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to, it takes so fucking long to figure out that you have an issue and then to totally. know what it is and then how to communicate it and then trying to Google and find resources. It's just and like, then, and then know. on top of all of that, to be able to afford the resources, like, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's so expensive. I think what, you know, what I always think about when we're building, and I'm, this is not like a plug, I feel so pluggy, but when we're building Emma, you know, we're building her to, look at these red flags from like a health standpoint too, like someone who might be having signs of heart disease or whatever, but also like we want her to kind of incorporate mental health checks as part of like the, her, her physical, like when she's checking in to do your physical, oh. it's a mental health check mm -hmm. too, because that's what's going on like missed. And that's the thing that I think will come up quite a bit when someone's chatting to someone like Emma every day. Um, talking yeah. about lack of sleep, talking about stress levels, talking about, oh, I just had a fight with my partner. Oh, I'm going through this right. downstream with my kids. And it's in those reading between the line moments that something like Emma can pick up. Like, I'm noticing a bit of a pattern that you might not be aware of. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you should maybe seek some help in this area. Well, and, and you touch on another point too, and like a, an even larger version of it. But when your mental health is not right, it, creates physical issues. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're going to step two and not step one first, which should be mental health, is just so messed up as a it's society. So I, 
it, so I just got back from a really large healthcare conference, which of, of course I went to because of Emma and we built her around the biopsychosocial approach, which says that you support somebody socially, physically, and psychologically, right? The whole conference was basically about how um, as health systems has started incorporating the social determinants of health, basically meaning that like when a patient walks in, you're like, is there money in your bank account? Is your husband abusing you? Obviously they don't ask it like that but that that's actually getting them to better, um, to, to more positive health outcomes faster because they have to start looking at the patient in, in a holistic way. And it's exactly what, what we do at Emma, but that's what's so exciting about artificial intelligence is again, it's the application, like we were saying, if we start to layer in different aspects of this into organizations, I think we can get holistic views, not just on health stuff. I'm sure if you're like bringing your car in to get its carburetor changed and like having the ability to do a holistic check would improve the outcome there. And I know that's like a really superficial way, but like just imagine if before Lisa got on the phone to talk to somebody at the Trevor Project, if she had a holistic overview of the person she was about to talk to. I would assume that that could change the entire trajectory mm. of the call. And that's what makes me so excited. And that's why it was so great to have both of you guys on at the same time. Your parallels, which there are some parallels that I know that nobody even knows on these calls. The amount of parallels between Megan and Lisa's life is absolutely shocking. You guys were probably sisters or married in some past <laughs> life or something. Um, it's just crazy the amount of parallels. But to talk about LGBTQ, and AI and not include mental health makes absolutely no sense because the reality is they're completely tied into each other. And we didn't get to go into this today and I know that we're at the end of call. So I just wanna mention this before we close. Everyone needs to keep this in mind. AI models are trained by humans. They're human-like, they're not humans, which means AI models are inherently full of biases. I'm not saying that we can't fix that one day as the people that build AI, but right now they all have it. Even Emma has it. Now, one way to combat that is you have diverse teams building AI. That's like one great way, obviously. And you include it, that you include people like Megan and Lisa at the table um, who don't necessarily work in AI, but can help with the biases that exist. So with that, I am so, so pumped. I had so much fun on this call. Um, and I just thank you both so much. Lisa, do you want to say anything before we end? And then, of course, Megan, um, off to you. And then we'll say toodaloo. I keep thinking I just said toodaloo. Megan's going to make fun of me later for that, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, we covered a lot of ground. And I think it's just really important ground. And I think that, you know, one of the things we didn't really touch on, but we, we did kind of under the surface, is that the more we integrate things like, um, mental health screening and the, the regularity of that into, you know, our, um, into our uh, physical health, the more it becomes less stigmatized in the mainstream. So it's kind of, it's kind of doing double duty by making, you know, building that out and making that, you know, more of a part of, of what we do and how we think, um, you know, and, other than that, uh, I'm just I'm just thrilled to be you know back with the dream team here and um, you know being able to spend a little bit of time like Megan, you and I have kind of known each other from afar, and I think this is like the very first time we've ever really like been able to interact, except for when we were married in that previous life. Right. But, <laughs> I mean, I mean, and uh, it just feels so good to to be here um, and you know to be part of this conversation. So I I just appreciate it so much. Yeah, I mean, th there are a lot of parallels and, and we'll have to like maybe chat after this because 
Um, my dad died too when I was 18 of a heart attack, mm -hmm. as far as I know, uh, mm -hmm. but heavy smoker. And, um, you know, we're still in the middle of that mental health um, journey. And I don't know how else best to really describe it. And it is definitely an, a, a brain illness, emotional illness. I don't know how to say it, but, um, and it's, it's heavy. And so I'm just happy to connect with you Same. on some of those things. Um, but yeah, and just like create more community. Cause I think, you know, having the conversations around like mental illness and creating community is really what's going to, um, you know, save our next generations. Mm -hmm. Save our next generations and AI can help and break that. So anyways, thank you for joining us, everybody, um, and learning a little bit more about artificial intelligence together so none of us fall behind this revolution. And I've never ended a podcast like this, but I truly, truly love you all. And I'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Love you guys.